Welcome back, everybody, to the Brubble Podcast, a podcast exploring young voices and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. I'm your host, Simon. And today we're diving a bit into China-EU relations. So at the beginning of this year, China opened back up for business. And we've seen over the past few months a steady stream of European politicians taking the opportunity to take a little trip over there. And perhaps the most influential such visit happened from April 5th to April 7th of uh, last month when, when French President Emmanuel Macron visited China. So the question is, why are we visiting China? Why did Macron visit China? What were his aims? What did he achieve? And what does this tell us about the state of EU-China relations? To help me tackle all these simple, small questions, I have a friend of mine on here, Alan. How are you doing, Alan? Well, I have to say, <laughs> the questions are not so simple, huh? but uh, we'll definitely get into it later. I'm doing great, Simon. Thank you so much for, for having me on this podcast. And it's great work that you're doing, inviting young voices from the Brussels bubble to speak about um, all these really complex topics that a lot of the times young voices don't have the chance to to give their, their say on. So really happy to be here. I'm glad to host this because part of me, I just like hearing the different perspectives from different areas. For sure. Part of my momentum behind is I find that when you do policy in Brussels, a lot of times you're stuck in a niche yes. and you never peek your head out over it. And there's yes. so much else going on. Exactly. And talking about the whole picture, Alan, you're here with me today. The people don't know who you are. Can you tell them a bit what you do in life? I'm into an NGO right now, but I'm a master's graduate from the Brussels School of Governance. And uh, I've published um, some academic and political commentary pieces on EU-China relations. And because I'm an aspiring EU-China analyst myself, I'm originally from Shanghai, China, but I moved to Belgium nine years ago, and this is my fifth year in Brussels, and I'm really enjoying it in this uh, policy-making world. Uh, uh, you almost caught yourself there, because you almost said, I'm really enjoying it here in Brussels, which I guess it takes five years to enjoy it in Brussels, but it's gray and misery beginning, but it's finally sunny, so I, I, I can <laughs> let you off the hook there. <laughs> yes, I mean, does, does Brussels get, need some getting used to, for sure, but... I like I like the big city. Um, yeah, the city is not too big, but not too small at the same time. And you know, there's so many different things happening. Especially if you're into politics, like me, you know, being able to go to these conferences and get to meet these interesting people and being on a podcast like this, you know, like this is this is an opportunity that you will only get uh, in Brussels. Yeah, yeah. I always feel like it's a city where. You can walk into two people, and at least one and a half of them will be policy experts on something. <laughs> yeah. you, know, you don't have that anywhere else. Yeah, exactly. It's inevitable. Yeah, go to yeah. some bar somewhere, there's always going to be someone talking about politics. Yeah, and when they're talking to you about politics, you talk about China. Why is that, Alan? I, we know you're from China originally, right? But It's weird because I always say this. I only became Chinese after I arrived here because I, I was identified as the Chinese guy. And people, because of where I'm from, usually assume that I am an expert on my country, <laughs> you know. And so they would always come to me asking me for my opinions, for my you know knowledge on, on certain things. And I had to say for for a very long time, you know, it was before I, I have the the knowledge that I have now. I didn't feel quite legitimate to to express myself on certain things, right? Because just because I'm from somewhere doesn't mean that I'm uh, knowledgeable about everything that goes on, especially when it comes to high politics. Right. But today I'm, I can say that I'm more comfortable in, you know, giving my opinion on these things. Yeah, because like you mentioned, you publish quite a few things. And I think you have an interesting publication upcoming, really analyzing the Macron visit to China, which yeah. the link to where it will be published will be below. So definitely give that a look uh, as it comes out. But what always struck me about China, or at least China researchers, it seems such a fascinating and fast-paced world to really be caught up in. Is that the case still nowadays? Like, 
Is China the thing to be studying, and and why is that? Definitely, because not just because of how how important you know China is on the on the global stage, you know, being the second largest economy in the world, and an emerging global superpower. I mean, especially in Europe, right? We we see that we've entered into this new phase in EU-China relations, where tensions are at an all-time high. You know, I mean, long gone is the period where China was welcomed as a, as a partner for business, right, with, with open arms, and when Beijing was considered as a reliable partner in global governance. Right? And we've seen relations really sour in recent years, you know, with the comprehensive agreement on investment put in deep freeze. And Beijing imposing an extremely restrictive trade embargo on Lithuania, amongst other incidents, and with many EU member states, especially France and Germany, advocating for this more realistic approach to China. Right. So we've seen an expansion of the EU's trade investment toolbox to address a lot of these critical imbalances and risks in EU-China commercial relationship, and this includes, you know, the union-wide investment screening mechanism, the foreign subsidies regulation. And the anti-coercion coercion instrument, which kind of gives the union the teeth, right, to bite back if it was ever confronted with a Lithuania embargo type situation ever again. And this deterioration, from my point of view, is largely due to two reasons. So, firstly, we have to recognize that China has indeed became more assertive in its foreign policy and more repressive domestically. So, it's taking an increasingly authoritarian path, right, that has largely unnerved a lot of people here in Europe, especially policymakers. And also believe that there are many in Europe who share Washington's fear of China as this revisionist power, right, that seeks to mold the international order to suit its interests. This belief, you know, has really motivated the EU to take a harder line. Right? We've seen with the EU strategic pump compass that came out back in 2019, that classifies China not only as a partner for cooperation and an economic competitor, but also as a systemic rival. Now that's quite significant, right? It's a very diplomatic way of saying that. The EU views China as a threat, and this last definition has been becoming more and more prominent in recent years. And to answer your question of why is it an exciting time now to study EU-China, why is it relevant? I mean, the best expression of this of this trend of a harder line on China is the the speech given by President von der Leyen right, back in late March, where she took the most hard line stance of any other EU high-level EU official on China. Right. She insisted on the need to de-risk the EU's relationship with China, a nation that she considers to have become more repressive at home and more assertive abroad, and who coercively leverages economic dependencies and spreads disinformation to undermine democracies. Right, and, but as we'll discuss later, not all member states share this hardline view. There's a, quite a bit of a difference between how the Commission views China and how you know different. Uh, capitals of different member states views this issue. Yeah, and I think that dynamic is very evident when we see different heads of states travel over to countries like China. Because when they travel over, it's always with some, you know, this buzz of fanfare, right? All this, you know, the ceremonial carpet is laid out. The、uh, you know handshakes are taken. But you also have the underlying feeling there's a playbook for doing this. There's a reason why they're traveling to these places. And with Macron's visit, we saw that. There was a playbook at play. Do, do you want to give us some some context on why Macron was so intent to go to China? I mean, initially, I remember we planted this podcast back in January when it first announced, and it kept getting delayed and postponed and put off until I, I think now. So it's been in the works for a while. So what's the playbook? What's the aims for Macron? 
I think a, a big reason why it was uh, delayed so much was because the the Elysee was trying to court the commission into forming a joint visit. Because um, I believe it was reported back in, as far back as in February, Macron had been trying to get von der Leyen to sign up to a, a trip with him to China, you know, so that he can dress his visit as this, you know, sign of European solidarity right in front of Xi. And there's a lot of reasons for, for other than that, there's a lot of reasons for Macron to go to China, such as the re-establishing dialogue with China after it's lifting its stringent zero-COVID policy. Like you mentioned earlier in the podcast, China is now open for business, right? And with those travel restrictions lifted, it's much more easier to, to resume that, um, that relationship. And let's not forget that this is actually Macron's third visit to China, which shows the importance, right, that the French leader puts on his you know, personal diplomacy, right, vis-a-vis Xi. I think there's definitely a part of him that thinks that he can somewhat, I think charm is the wrong word here, but to establish a personal relationship that's significant enough, right, that can help solidify this bilateral relationship between the two countries. And also, I think this is, he wants to reassure his Chinese counterpart, right, Macron, that France was open dialogue and cooperation within the very tense political environment between the the West and China. We saw right before the visit, we had, you know, this spy balloon incident. Uh, there was a lot of talk around Taiwan, right? There's a lot of um, by policymakers in the West that there was this fear of China uh, invading Taiwan in the near future, you know, and other things such as uh, restriction of uh, the export of certain uh, products, such as semiconductors to China. Right, this, this ratchet, so which reflects the sort of rising tensions, and so Macron wanted to make the visit to make sure that this bilateral relationship can be uh, maintained and is more predictable. But it wasn't only just uh, economic terms, no, because I remember back then before he visited, there was a lot of rhetoric going on around that about how. Macron wanted to also maybe go there potentially to, in a sense, charm, as you were saying, maybe not the right word, maybe it is, Xi Jinping surrounding the, the Ukraine issue and uh, the increasingly seemingly close relationship between Russia and China that was developing the days before that visit. Was that ever a feasible goal or a realistic goal as, as he went out there as well? Like you said, there was definitely a lot of talk about Macron hoping to influence Xi to leverage his influence on Russia with regard to Ukraine. Right, he's one of his own officials was stated as saying, if there's a single country that can lead Moscow to change its calculations, it is China. And and indeed, China has shown, for example, through the deal that it brokered between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and back in March, that it was indeed a diplomatic mediator to be reckoned with. Right, but if we take a closer look at the relationship between Putin and Xi, especially like you know, case in point, their their meeting in Moscow. It's very unlikely that she would back away from his Russian ally. You know, you have to remember that she, he said to Putin at the end of their meeting, right now there are changes, the likes of which we haven't seen for a hundred years, and we are the ones driving these changes. You know, it shows that like, she really values this close cooperation with Russia, because to achieve their common goal of revising, reforming, changing the existing world order in their interest, they need to work together. So to answer your question, it was not feasible. And I doubt Macron had any hopes that he could actually influence Xi on this very important you know, policy issue just 
only during seven hours of private conversation. It's almost reminiscent to me about that trip uh, Macron took, I think, mid-2022 to Russia as well during the height of the, the Russian war yes. aggression against Ukraine, where he sat down, you know, 20 feet away in that long table. That great, yeah, big, enormous table. And when he went away, he came away empty-handed, seemingly, and the press really had a field day. And when he announced this visit to China, in my mind, it's like, oh, he is, you know, winning the public back. He's going to come back with a great victory. I, I guess that wasn't really in the books. But, Alan, did he come back with anything at all? How did his visit go? He managed to get Xi to agree to call Zelensky. That was a largely, I would say, symbolic victory. And it was actually followed up on by the Chinese leader, right? They, they had a call back, uh, I think it was on the 26th or 27th of April, they had a call. It's only an hour-long call, very self-serving for Xi. wanted to promote himself as this mediator, right, in this, uh, in this conflict. But what mediator if you're not willing to at first condemn Russia for, for its aggressions? I do think, though, that the more important achievements by Macron had been to, like I said before, open dialogue, reestablish that personal relationship with Xi, and also further cement their important commercial relationship. I, know, I think the commercial anger here is very strong. Macron arrived in Beijing at the head of a 50-strong delegation. You know, with, she, with CEOs from Airbus, uh, L'Oréal, the BMP Paribas, really big French companies right, that are deeply embedded in the Chinese economy. Mind you, uh, Airbus controls 57% of China's aviation market. And for the first time last year, the bilateral trade between France and China exceeded 100 billion euros. China is now France's third largest trading partner for, for some years now. And since 2019, China has been the largest source of foreign investment to France. And I, f I think another aspect that Macron really wanted to address with China regarding their commercial relationship was this unfair economic practices by the Chinese and unequal market access. All right. There, Macron really made a point. And then their joint uh, communique at the end of the visit, um, both countries declared that they would make efforts towards improving mutual market access. Right. Yeah, because that, that's a... Considering the volume of trade going in between there, it is quite relevant that these agreements were brought up, discussed. And I think it's something that I think often slips underneath, you know, the average layman's look at what happened there. Because when we look at these visits, we think, oh, it's all this glamorous, you know, talk about high-level diplomacy and solving wars and conflict and human rights and everything like that. But if the real focus is business, like you were saying, in many regards, it was somewhat successful, no? Definitely. Definitely very successful. And another aspect is of this visit was for France to expand its cooperation with China uh, in engaging with the developing world. You know, this was something that was not very talked about. But um, France, prior to this visit, extended an vis uh, invitation for China to participate in the Summit for a New Global Financial Pact, this international conference hosted by the French that would the declared aim of addressing all the ongoing debt crises in developing nations, right? We've seen in Sri Lanka, for example, this completely fell in, uh, into, into crisis because of how hardly they are defaulting on their loans and how they are unable to, to import food, even food and fuel. And also to, for the French and the Chinese to work on facilitating uh, 
development financing, right, for the Global South. The French invitation really shows this recognition by France that China is a, a great emerging leader, right, in development financing. And, and this is why I think also France accepted to doing the visit to participate in the next um, Belt and Road Forum. It's also another another sign that uh, that France views China as an invaluable partner in infrastructure and development financing. Do you think that this whole, I mean, the more you talk about the French relationship with China and then how, especially how it's evolved or, I guess, accentuated throughout this visit, it, it appears to me that they're almost seeking um, like a dominant role as a deep person to go to when it comes to Europe for China. Do you think that's kind of an identity that was kind of being formed when they had this visit? Was this one of the aims? No, I'm really glad you, you mentioned that because we can really tell that there is this, especially when you compare this visit to the one by Schultz last November, right? Mm-hmm. There's this very clear aim by the French to be China's main point of contact right, within Europe when we compare the two visits, right? You know, Macron, he came with a 50-strong business delegation, Schultz, 11. Macron, he stayed for three days, you know, one of which I believe he went to Guangzhou, right, which was where Xi's father had served as, a, as an official, compared to Schultz's lightning 11 hours. And it was Macron's only trip to Asia this year, whereas with Schultz, he followed up his brief passage in China to Vietnam and, I believe, Singapore. So for Schultz, it was, he tried to style as this wider Asia trip, right? Whereas for Macron, he wanted to show the Chinese that you are the center of my focus here. And there's also other details which can or cannot be proof of this desire to be uh, China's favorite. Um, the, the Airbus deal that Macron announced was slightly larger than what Schultz announced. When Schultz was there, they announced the purchase of 140 aircrafts, with Macron was 160. Although, to say that these are new deals would not be entirely accurate, because they are part of a larger deal between Airbus and China that was concluded earlier last year. Do, do you think that China also prefers France? Just to put it very simply? Definitely. Uh, if you read a lot of uh, what's coming out from Chinese researchers, think tankers, they view France as a great entry point into Europe because because France has been advocating for strategic autonomy. Mm. And the uh, the Chinese view that as, as beneficial to them because unlike, for example, the Germans who do consider China as an important economic partner, but because of their... I would say, greater reliance on the United States for defense. They are not able to take a more strategic distance from the United States, whereas the French are able to do that. We've been seeing how Germany is, even though Schultz has tried to take a more softer stance, has been heavily contrasted by what his uh, economic minister and foreign minister, right, for from the German Green parties, Habeck and Baerbock, they're very against China. They really want to take a harder line that's more aligned with Washington's hard line on China. Whereas you don't, at least from where I'm from, from where I'm sitting, I don't see that coming from France. Mm. How do you think that contrasts with the European Union's role in this, or the European Commission's role? Because, I mean, take a little tangent, I suppose. I think this is a good time to do this. Von der Leyen was also in China at the same time as Macron, but she had a very different treatment. Do you think this kind of speaks not only to, I guess, a different view of, you know, the the commission as well as China of each other as, you know, viable trading partners or just tensions around it. Do you want to give some perspectives? 
No, definitely. Um, even though they styled it as a common visit, it was completely two different visits. You know, I call it a tale of two presidents. Right? You have Macron who got you know this great warm welcome, state welcome, right? Because following Chinese diplomatic protocol, he was given priority because he is a head of state, whereas von der Leyen is not a head of anything in the view of the Chinese. Hmm. The Chinese don't prioritize these sort of supranational uh, institutions. And it was two very different visits. Uh, von der Leyen was largely marginalized by the Chinese. You can tell by the way that the state media was, was covering both visits, right? You barely had any mention of von der Leyen, whereas there was many uh, claims of this new blossoming rank of Chinese friendship. But that's also, I think, largely due to the different approaches that the two leaders took. So you had on one side Macron, who, like I said before, wanted to cement that commercial relationship, wanted to open dialogue, make sure that the Chinese are aware that France still values their relationship greatly. And then on the other side, you have von der Leyen, who decidedly took a very harder stance. I mean, you saw that during their trilateral meeting, right, in front of the press. Von der Leyen made it very clear that she saw risks in the EU-China relationship, right, risks that needed to be addressed. Whereas Macron vaguely alluded to the need because of European strategic autonomy so that Europe had to take measures to secure strategic sectors. But he did, did it so in a way that he avoided mentioning the EU-China relationship. Do, do you see the, the difference here? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's very evident even when you look at, I mean, in the last podcast that we had this huge debate on decoupling versus destructuring. And I, I think especially following these two visits, we could really see that where von der Leyen stands, she wants to really base it on those values. She really wants to, you know, keep it looking nice. Whereas with Macron, it's not just decoupling from China. It's simply the Europe or France, in his opinion, as its own strategic actor. It doesn't matter if you're America, it doesn't matter if you're France. Whereas with von der Leyen, there's some of that value-based identity that comes in. Maybe that, I guess, Schultz had the same thing. I think it's also still socialist, right? Where, or socialist Democrat, my apologies. My European political parties is not great, <laughs> putting that caveat in there. But he also very much bases his philosophy on having that values-based approach, which I think also doesn't sit too well with the Chinese, right? In terms of values-based approach, I would say that with the with Schultz, from what I understand, yes, he had has made some criticisms regarding China's human rights situations. That is indeed something that he brought up in his November visit. And so, yes, you could say that his normative approach is stronger than Macron's, right? Um, with regards to von der Leyen, I would say that a lot of it also stems from her very close relationship with the White House. Mm-hmm. Right? True. She has a far more transatlanticist vision when approaching foreign affairs. I mean, this relationship has been developing for years now, and there's a strong will from her part to align European policy with Washington on China. If you just took a look at her joint statement after her visit to the Oval Office back in March, it said that we, the United States and Europe, have a common interest in preventing our companies' capital, expertise, and knowledge from fueling technological advances that will enhance the military and intelligence capabilities of our strategic rivals, mm. including through outbound investment, right? I mean, outbound investment screening, that's something that the commission has proposed, 
And it's something that they're fo- trying to follow in the footsteps of what the Americans are doing. Because the permission proposal on screening out bond investment came out early this year, I believe. Yeah. Whereas the Americans had already proposed that back in last November or December, I think. They're trying to introduce the bill in Congress, and Biden is also thinking about uh, introducing an executive order. I'm not sure if he's done it yet or not. You know, so that's definitely like this uh, this will from the commission to achieve alignment with the with Washington on the issue. Yeah, no, I think it's super fascinating how when you compare to French and and Europeans and even to Germans or even Americans, you can really see how they're approaching China differently, and you can see, I guess, how China's reacting. It really really loves us to get a bit of insight into what their whole playbook is and their whole philosophy about how they're moving forward. And I suppose sp- speaking of moving forward, because we've been talking a little bit about the visits. I kind of want to wrap up on the Macron visit then and, and kind of ask you, what lessons are we taking away from Macron's visit? Where do we think the relationship is going? What do we think is next? On that, I think we can, not just from the visit itself, but also from the controversial remarks that he gave on his uh, plane ride back to to France, you know, his entire approach to China, I think it reflects this very distinctively Macronian uh, worldview of international relations. And I had the pleasure of discussing this with uh, Dr. Mathieu Duchatel. He was a director of international studies at Institut Montaigne, a Paris-based think tank. And he explained to me that the primary concern of the French president, which is that the world is slipping back into this sort of Cold War-style block confrontation, right, from this ever-intensifying U.S.-China rivalry. And that this emerging bipolarity is fundamentally detrimental to European interests. And you can tell that from, from what Macron said in an interview, you know. And so for Europe, in his view, uh, to thrive in this new political climate, it has to assert itself as a third superpower, as he said, through achieving strategic autonomy. And so what this implies is an alliance with the United States while strategically distancing from Washington on certain issues, right, and seeking pragmatic cooperation with Beijing in areas that do promote European and French interests. And you can see like there's this, at least from, from my point of view, this rejection of American-led unipolarity or bipolarity was discreetly mentioned in the, a joint declaration at the end of the visit, right? Underneath a section on promoting global security and stability, you know, China and France declared that they seek to strengthen the multilateral international system under the aegis of the United Nations in a multipolar world. Mm. And I think it's very important, these terms, this choice of terms. Uh, multipolar, that's something that the Chinese and the Russians have been advocating for since as early as the late 90s. And I believe that this interpretation of multipolarism is different depending on who you're asking. Right? I feel like for the French, they view multipolarism as emerging from Europe asserting itself as a third pole and resisting the bipolarity of Sino-American competition. Whereas China views multipolarism not necessarily from the view of resisting bipolarity, but as a way of legitimizing its creation of a parallel international order Mm. that serves its interests. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating because when, when you hear these conversations of, you know, France adopting a strategic autonomous position while yeah. being, you know, almost cheered on by China, 
you get the feeling, are they making the right choice? Are their yeah. visions aligned on this? And the way you, you lay it out, or at least it, it kind of follows the logic of, maybe they're not on the right page when it comes to definitions. No. But when you think about the larger China-France relationship then, is that a dangerous game for France to be playing? Interesting you ask that. France views it as necessary. Hmm. Because as, you, uh, as Macron said during his controversial interview, if Europe does not achieve strategic autonomy, when tensions heat up between the two superpowers, Europe will become vassals. Uh, he, he genuinely believes that if Europe does not have the ability to choose when the time comes, where they want to stand on, on an issue such as Taiwan, they will inevitably follow the American agenda. And this is, I think, a part of the interview that doesn't get mentioned very often, is his warning that Europe needs to reduce its dependence on the extraterritoriality of the dollar. And this is what he's referring to is Washington's ability to deny countries access to the dollar-dominated global financial system through sanctions. We saw that with, uh, with Iran back in 2018-2019, where uh, ex-President Trump decided to pull out of the uh, Joint Comprehensive Agreement, right, the Iran nuclear deal, yeah. quite abruptly with no consultation or seeking of advice from his allies. And this American pullout reintroduced an extremely stringent sanctions regime on Iran. And a lot of European companies had to simply stop doing business with Iran or else face secondary sanctions from the United States. And that, was, uh, that move by the Americans was really criticized by a lot of European uh, policymakers as they viewed it as this sort of weaponization of the dollar mm-hmm. that completely undermined European sovereignty. And this wariness of the, the power of the dollar, right? You, you, we've seen, we're starting to see this now in, in the deals that, that France is concluding with China. So during the visit, right, like I mentioned before, France acquired 14 cargo ships from China. For the first time, this deal was made in Chinese yuan. And a week prior to that, China purchased liquefied natural gas from France in yuan as well, hmm. also for the first time. So in a global market where the dollar is king, France support for the internationalization of the renminbi no doubt represents a challenge to American financial hegemony. I think this is a tendency that people should keep an eye on. I think there's a very potent takeaway from this discussion because it's something that I don't it hasn't crossed across my desk or my computer as an articles as much so it's super mm-hmm. nice that you bring something that up should that be the final takeaway we have today because we're, we're running rapidly out of time is there something else that we should take away as well from the Macron visit to China I think the biggest takeaway we can take we can we have from this visit is that the defining dynamic for Europe's future approach to China is going to be this division between the commission and the member states on how to balance the relationship with the United States and with China. So as I mentioned before, the commission is far more transatlanticist, and von der Leyen is, with her speech especially, is really trying to push for a hard line, and she's trying to lead the pack. She's trying to set the tone of what the European approach should be. Like the way that she did on Russian sanctions and on COVID pandemic rescue packages, which was criticized for a lack of consultation with member states. Right? There's been talk that she governs in a way that's quite executive right, and lacks that, um, that consultation with member states. And then you have on the other side this certain European capitals and even the consul itself. You've seen with uh, President Michel. He made a solo trip to China last year, and he has yet to make a trip to, to Washington. You know, von der Leyen has gone, gone 
more than twice. Michel openly uh, supported Macron's controversial remarks on, on the United States and China. He also said that there is indeed, I'm quoting here, there is indeed a great attachment that remains present, and Emmanuel Macron has said nothing else for this alliance with the United States. But if this alliance with the United States would suppose that we blindly, systematically fold the position of the United States on all issues, no. And another case in point, on the same day that von der Leyen was giving her landmark speech on EU-China relations, you had Spanish Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez, right, who was speaking at the Bao Forum in Hainan, China, which is basically the Chinese version of Davos. He said, I firmly believe that relations between Europe and China, and by extension between Spain and China, do not have to be confrontational. There is a wide scope for mutually beneficial cooperation. We must remain partners financially and beyond. So you see, there is a really a significant gap between what the hard line the commission is trying to advocate for and the stances of many major member states. Yeah, super fascinating, because it's almost like they're acting as two distinct entities while they're at the core representing the same people. That's, that's the ideal. That's what they should be doing. Mm. But because the commission is not beholden to any national commercial interest, they're able to act more freely. And in this case, you know, they have decided to take, and I believe it's, it's not a, a wrong step. I think Europe does have to, in some ways, protect itself and assert itself in vis-a-vis -vis China. If you don't do that, Beijing will take advantage of you. That is an ominous note to almost end it on here. <laughs> Are you sure that's the last? Because I still have a fun personal question left, but is oh. that the last word of substantive input you want to have? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good question. Huh? Uh, well, if you want to catch more of your words, though, there's a bunch of stuff you've written in the past, which is super informative on China-EU relations going forward. I'll, if you send me a few links, I'll for sure link it. Um, and right. you have a great article also coming out soon, I hope. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I've been in your seat before where it's like get the last version in get the last review done oh. <laughs> anyways so before we wrap up I always like to wrap up a bit more of a fun personal question I didn't prepare you for this whatsoever so okay. my favorite part as a child growing up and you know an enthusiast of international relations and visits and whatever whenever it comes to China what I used to love was their panda diplomacy where you went there you were friendly you got a panda bear on loan, that is, right? I think that's kind of yes. how it worked out. Yes. So, imagine you're a nice diplomat. You're going to a country, or you're head of a country. What animal would you be giving out as your uh, diplomatic token? <laughs> Ted, that's, that's the curveball. Um, what animal would I be giving out? Hmm. See, I've always, liked to, I've always had this fascination with, you know, birds. I think birds are beautiful creatures. Yeah, that's true. And the bigger the bird, the more it says about it, right? So I'd love to give like a give an ostrich or something, you know. I was gonna say you said a big bird, an ostrich. I mean, like an ostrich egg, right? Oh, make, make a massive omelet, you know. Like That's the, a, I like that idea. You right? com you combine both the meal and the exactly. You know, they can actually do something with it. They don't have to like struggle to find a pen <laughs> to keep that giant ostrich in, right? And just like, great, I'm gonna have a really high protein breakfast. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll t- I wasn't exist. <laughs> you're eating your gift animal, but I, I kind of like the, the twist on this. That, that's just me. That's just me. I, I think about food like half the time of the day, you know, so. Fair enough. Uh, fair enough. Okay. That's, that's just being Chinese, I guess. We're just always thinking about food. Yeah. I guess so, yeah. And as some of my other Chinese friends in Canada have told me, warm drinks. You like your war- drinks warm, which as a yeah. as a European does not appeal to me, but uh, regardless, too strong. <laughs> warm drinks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my mother always has a thermos on her. You know, yeah. Like just at the ready, right? Because she knows that she can't really ask for hot water in a cafe or something. People just look, look at her weird. Like, you just want hot water? You don't want tea with that? So I just want hot water. It's this... Belief from Chinese traditional medicine, where that if you have intake too much cold, mm-hmm. that it messes with your your body somehow, yeah. right? And that you get like, they think that it causes maybe arthritis or like pain, joint joint pain and stuff. Like, yeah, cold is not good, but warm is, <laughs> right? See. I know this, this is going a bit off piece, but you know we'll, we'll see. They've been here for a while. If they're still listening, still listening. I was in Canada. My friend, who's also yeah. Chinese, I, I think he was born there. His parents were. Regardless, he's. I was staying at his place, and for breakfast, I woke up and I'm like, oh, refreshing drink. He was heating me a warm glass of milk. I swear, as a European, I hadn't had a warm glass of milk since I was four years old. <laughs> it was a significant glass, and I'm like. This is a belief, and that's what I'm just focusing on—a belief that the cold is bad for you. But exactly. uh, again, yeah. that's. Yeah. I think also just because the, um, I guess traditionally they use the boil water because this is the way to yeah. disinfect it, right? I think I've it also comes too. from that. Yeah. Um, when it comes to the milk, though, I would say that probably also comes from us drinking soy milk, warm soy milk in the morning. That is like the the staple of a chi- of a full Chinese breakfast. Mm. Yeah, soy milk. Uh, warm soy milk. I guess some modern jokes could be made about that, but uh, <laughs> not going to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to get canceled. <laughs> no, nah, I was just thinking of, I remember one of my favorite Chinese headlines from like two years ago. And like it was like some Chinese general being like, the men are too weak. They need to get out of the house. We're going to ban video games and make them run more. <laughs> uh, right. I can't remember exact, his exact words, but. Uh, the problem is that they're drinking too much soy. Is that right? I didn't say that, but <laughs> <laughs> the whole soy boy thing is that is that what? No, because not saying anything. Nothing. Okay, fair, we'll, fair enough. we'll see about this. We'll but see. I think this wraps up a a colorful ending to our podcast. Right. Uh, we'll see how much of this we keep in for the audience. If in, we'll, we'll let their imaginations play, if, if anything else. <laughs> but uh, I've really enjoyed having you on here, Alan, and I really encourage. I thought it was super informative, and I encourage anybody else who wants to know a little bit more about China, check out your works. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you for having me on. No worries. It was a great way to wrap up a busy week, I suppose. Well, I'll catch you people all next time. I think the next episode should be on, you know, the role of cities in governance. I was just talking to somebody who getting that set up today. So that should be exciting. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, thanks for coming on, Alan, and I hope you people have a good day. Bye.